I've been very, very lucky. I don't know why it's happened, but the most extraordinary things have happened to me. And uh, as we're all the result of our experience, then I've had extraordinary things. I've had what you would call discarnates, that's dead people, or people who have passed on, speaking to me in all sorts of ways. Not personally, I'm not a medium, but I have so many friends who are mediums. Uh, they sit in my house in meditation, we go to other houses in meditation, and we've had some really quite extraordinary things. Now these people don't just chat about, you know, what Auntie Mabel's got for dinner or something like that. They've been talking about the purpose of the universe, what our lives are for, what we can expect to happen to us, and not perhaps just when we pass over, but in eons and eons and eons ahead. Although I've had so much information flooding in from all quarters, this doesn't make it very easy to explain, because these people who communicate and whose messages I get, they don't all agree. Now this may be because they are at different levels, and they see things from different perspectives. Now if you turn to science, you get exactly the same situation. In science, a theory holds sway for a time, and then another discovery is made, and the old theory is discarded. Many mysteries remain from a scientific point of view about the universe. But it's not my problem to point out the problems that science has got. I want to deal with the spiritual aspects of the universe. It was said that when our Saint Augustine first came to this country as a missionary for Christianity, he was taken to a huge wooden hall like a modern barn where a Saxon king in Kent was sitting there with his warriors. And Saint Augustine, it is said, began to speak about the Christian religion. And while he was doing so, a bird flew in through a little opening, because they didn't have chimneys, flew through the lighted, smoky hall and out at the other end. And when St Augustine had finished, because he wasn't a saint then, he was just plain Augustine, when he had finished, he said, we do not know where that bird came from. This was the king. We do not know where it's gone. Our lives are like that. We do not know where we come from. We do not know where we go. And if this religion can tell us these things, we will listen to it. Some years ago, I wrote to the main religious newspapers and I asked the Methodists, the Catholics, the um, various branches of the Church of England, could they direct me to their official teaching on life after death? And do you know they couldn't? They said, well, you might find a bit in such and such a handbook if you can borrow it from a minister. But they didn't sort of trot me out and said, this is what we believe about life after death. Heaven and hell seems to have disappeared. They've quietly gone, but nothing's replaced them. Anyway, now I think it was Alexander Pope who said, say first of God above or man below, what can we reason but from what we know? And I have to reason from what I know. So if I could briefly explain to you the things that brought me to my present view. Both my parents were strictly brought up in a sectarian way. My mother was strictly brought up as a Baptist little girl, and my father was strictly brought up as a Plymouth brother. The result was they both revolted against it. My mother proclaimed herself a pagan, and my father proclaimed himself a scientific agnostic. And I followed my father. Scientific agnostic, logic, facts, don't give me theories, I want facts, I don't want any of that nonsense. If you can't measure the soul, it doesn't exist, I don't want to know about it. Now, things began to happen to me. I know I thought religion was a superstition which we'd grown out of, but I had a quarrel with my best friend 
for a few days and I cycled up to the West Norwood Public Library and I borrowed a book and it was Plato's Dialogues, all about Socrates. And I thought, this man is great. He's logical, he's thoughtful, he's incisive, he's really interesting. And yet he believes in a life after death. When they sentenced him to death, they said he was corrupting the young people. One of the things he was alleged to have said was that the moon was a piece of rock and not a god. And for that he had to die. When he was sentenced, he said, I think that no one knows which of us is the better. You have condemned an innocent man to death, and I shall go on to see those lovely famous people who have passed into the next world who I want to talk to. Which of us is the happier? Now, I expect you know that in the famous scene, he had to drink hemlock. And this was the official punishment, much more humane than, we, than, than many countries today, I may say, but you had to drink hemlock, and gradually it worked its way up the body until you fell asleep and you died. So he had his friends around him while he drank the hemlock, and one of them said, what shall we do? Um, how shall we bury you? And he replied, you can do what you like, if you can catch me. <laughs> Meaning, he didn't think he was his body, he knew he would escape from that. Well, I had to carry this in the back of my mind. Here was this man I admired so much, this Socrates, and yet he believed, actually, in he taught reincarnation, he believed in life after death, he thought there was a heavenly world of which this was kind of imperfect copy, and that was the real place up there. Well, he certainly had an effect on society because he is still taught, I think, in most universities in the world, people do philosophy, they have to have a go at that. Then I came across a book which you might have come across. It was called The Personality of Man by Tyrrell. And I glanced through this because I was an avid reader and I saw the case of Mrs. Curran. Now, in about the 1870s, I'm not sure of the date, but in America, a lady called Mrs. Curran, who'd had no education, suddenly began to do automatic writing. That's to say that she let her mind go blank and the hand moved like that. And the person doing the writing declared that she was patient's worth and that she had died over a century before. And she wanted to write. And so she wrote. And she wrote historical novels. Well, you might think that wasn't so extraordinary, but they became bestsellers. They sold all over Europe and all over America because she, sold a, she wrote a lot of things about the time of Christ, historical novels, and they were a great vogue at the time. Out of Patience Worth, who died in about the 1600s, writing through someone who lived in the 1870s, who became a bestseller. Now, being a bit of a materialist, I couldn't help thinking that was rather a, a score, you know. But could it really be true that there were spirits and that you weren't dead? No. When you're finished, you're dead. I, I was sure of that. There was no such thing as a life after death. Well, I got another shock. I had just been commissioned in the Royal Air Force, and I'd just been up to Condit Street to get my new uniform, and I was ever so pleased with myself. And I was going down to Sidmouth to see my fiancé from London. But when I got to Salisbury, I couldn't go any further because the trains were all up the spout. There was a two-hour wait to get the next train to Exeter, even. So I wandered around Salisbury, and I wandered into Salisbury Cathedral. As soon as I got in, I could see there was something different. All the chairs were gone for a start, and I thought, well, I suppose this is what it was like when people built it, when they really believed all this God stuff. And it looks like a sort of God machine-like communication shaped. It must be designed like this for a purpose, I thought. Anyway, I walked from the west window to the east window. There was nothing intervening. You could see end to end. And three things happened to me at the same time. As I got near the east window, I thought someone had switched on a magnet under the floor because I had this desire to throw myself on the ground in the form of a cross. 
Now, I'm sure I resisted that. I was not going to lie down in public. I got my new uniform on, it would get all dirty, and I struggled to stay upright against this extraordinary force. And then I went blind. I couldn't see a thing. And while I was thinking about that, a fantastic light lit, perhaps in my mind, I don't know, but it was like the brightest light you've ever seen. It was edged with violet, it was edged with blue, it was edged with purple. And a voice spoke like an organ. I can hear it again now. It said, love them. And that was all it said. Now, I don't know what happened next, because when I came to, I was about 50 feet away down a side aisle. And there were people around me looking at me with a kind of wondering concern, as well they might. God knows what I look like. But what struck me was that these people, five or six of them, were all glowing with light, as though they had neon tubes inside them. They were actually shining. And I said to myself, having no knowledge of Orthodox Christianity at all, I said, angels? I just didn't know, didn't know what to think. Well, I still, in a way, don't quite know what to think. But it didn't half make me think. <laughs> and all the way down in the train, I was thinking how I would tell myself, see? And uh, what did it mean? And who had spoken to me? And what was the meaning of it? And my interests changed. Up till then, it had been adventure, sport, sex, uh, detective stories. And now when I went into a room, it was Buddhism, Christianity, Quakers, this sort of stuff, I was suddenly turned over. And I began a lifelong hobby of wanting to know. And so I read Buddhism and a bit of Hinduism, a bit of Taoism, a lot of Christianity, especially the early church and so on. And I got more and more interested. My wife joined me in this. I tried gospel churches, I became confirmed in the Church of England, got a bit dissatisfied, went to the Quakers, and at the Quakers I was very happy. I expect you know that the Quakers can't really argue because they sit quietly and meditate, and that you have a lovely feeling comes, and if anybody feels they must speak, they stand up and say something and they sit down again, and I really enjoyed the Quakers, but I moved away from the Quaker church, so it wasn't so easy to get there, and then I injured myself. I was doing some building work, on a house for my daughter, I picked up a three-stage wooden ladder and I got a bucket of concrete on the top. And I was too lazy to bring it all the way down and I tried to move the ladder with the concrete on the top and something went around here. And over the next few days, the pain got worse and worse, both arms, both legs. And so, of course, I went to the GP, the general hospital, the orthopedic hospital. No one could help me. They gave me a pretty collar to wear, like Sir Francis Drake or somebody. The pain, nothing would stop it except to sit bolt upright or stand bolt upright. And for five weeks, I sat bolt upright. I couldn't go to bed. I sat up night and day. Well, my wife naturally got a bit concerned about this. She said, you're going to have to retire. I was a teacher this time. And uh, she said, we've got to do something. And I said, well, what can I do weekly? I've been here. I've been to a chiropractor. I've been to a bone setter. Nobody's made me any better. She says, it says here, spiritual healing given in the Exeter Spiritualist Church after the service, and I didn't want to go. I don't know why I didn't want to go, but I just didn't want to go. I had a feeling that it wasn't a nice place to go, but my wife uh, won the day, as she usually did, and off I went. And I could drive still. If I got the seat bolt upright, I could drive without too much pain. Painkillers didn't do much good. Anyway, I sat through the service, and at the end I went up into a little healing room, and I was healed and I've never had any recurrence of the trouble. I was healed right off, and it's a very rare thing anywhere to get a straight-off healing, but I got one. At the church, which we started to go to now, the Spiritualist Church, because we've been so amazed, and my wife's father came through with a strong message to her, and uh, 
my father came through, he was a Cambridge mathematician, and the medium said, your father's here, he says if you had told him of this he wouldn't have had it in the house, yet he finds it to be true, which was just what my father would have said. My brother came through with a typical remark, he was an army major, rather rude, but it was genuine, it was guaranteed, I couldn't argue with it. So after about six months of saying it was all bunkum, I gave in, yes, it was possible for those we had thought dead to communicate. Well, a medium said to my wife and I that we would join a meditation group, and nothing happened. But 12 months later we did, in a private house. And we got along quite nicely, meditating once a week, 20 minutes, perhaps half an hour, chatting about New Age subjects and so on. And one of our members, Harry Smith, fell into trance. We didn't know about this. We were all sort of coming to, and there he was, he'd gone out. And when he woke up, he said, um, I've had people talking to me, they were like monks in white robes, and they were very nice, and they said, I'm going to be a healer, and no harm will come to any of us. Well, we were a bit perturbed at this, we didn't know about people falling into trance, so we thought, we'd better get someone to come and teach us. And we all admired a man who occasionally took a service at the church called George Pratt, and he was well known as a teacher of meditation. And he agreed to drive the 23 miles once a fortnight and teach us meditation, which he did. And then after 12 months, lo and behold, he fell into trance. Now what were we going to do? We had nobody in charge anymore. But he didn't just fall into trance. And I've got a transcript of what actually happened on that occasion. A deep sonorous voice issued from him. Another face appeared over his. If you've ever seen overshadowing, you know what I mean. It looks as though there's another face on top of the face you're looking at. And we heard this. Om, peace be with you. We have long sought you. It is very difficult for man's finite mind to appreciate the infinite. Man worshipped a concept. Because of his prejudice and superstition, this must be so. The worship of the concept limits the spirit. Man seeks to fulfill something inside himself, as the flowers and trees also manifest. He seeks community in worship. Keep an open door. Truth enlarges as man progresses. Before I go, is that what you would ask? Well, we were dumbfounded at this sort of supernatural visitation, and nobody spoke at first, and then I managed to stammer out, um, how can we make spiritual progress and help mankind? You will be shown. Consolidate your group. It is true what is said in your Bible, where two or three are gathered together. I will come again, if I may. Thank you for listening to me. My brothers call me White Ray. George woke up and we told him what had happened to him, that this voice had come through him, and he was delighted. What we didn't know was that 20 years before in London, he had regularly been the medium to a big group, and they had been taught by the White Brotherhood, who are the spiritual guardians of mankind on a certain level, and he hadn't been used for 20 years, and it had started again. He was so pleased. And he told us that the chief teacher would be the Tibetan, and so it proved, and the Tibetan started to come through and teach us, not every week, but at least once a fortnight. And we recorded it, and I've got hundreds of pages of transcript of what he taught us. And to cut it down very briefly, what he taught us was, we had all lived before, and we had volunteered to come back, and we had a rendezvous to meet in this life. 
Reincarnation is a fact, although man does not fully understand it. There will be changes as the earth goes from the Piscean to the Aquarian age. Karma, cause and effect, is the instrument of spiritual progress for all people. And we found that our Tibetan, he told us after four years of listening to him, he was the Tibetan who dictated through Alice Bailey a whole series of famous books. But what we were getting in our group was more suited to our degree of mental abilities, you may say, our brain capacity, because you have to take a group at the capacity of the slowest person. And we could all more or less understand, although sometimes he would leave us standing. So now I've got information pouring in from a Tibetan, and then a tragedy happened. My wife died. The day before she died, I was driving to Crediton and she said, if I die, I'm going to sort out this communication business. The next night, having been up most of the day, at half past eight, she said, I've had enough, I want to be out of my body. And she passed in hospital at one o'clock that night. Within 48 hours, I got the first message. A friend rang me up, the psychic, and said, I was coming out of the shower, Nancy spoke to me very strongly, I've got to give you this message. Please tell Michael not to forget the, birth, the Christmas presents for the grandchildren there in the top cupboard in the living room. And if little Kathleen is crying, give her the little leather bag of jewellery that's in the drawer by the hatch. It was the first thing she would have thought of. She then appeared at her own funeral, I didn't know, but a psychic told me afterwards that she'd been laughing and said, look at all these people, they don't know I'm here. Um, and so she nearly burst out laughing herself in the middle of the 23rd Psalm. She appeared so happy. A week later, I wasn't present, but she came through a medium in the church to two friends of mine and said, I come to see how you've arranged the flowers, because the flowers from the funeral went to the church. And she said, I was very, very tired, but now I feel fine, like being 22 again. And she has come through ever since, on average, once a month. Little messages of comfort, sometimes comment, you're making a good job of housekeeping, and so on. After six months, she came through in a remarkable way. I happened to have booked a sitting with a famous medium who's well known in England and Sweden. In, uh, and, uh, she was in Exeter. And I had a long conversation with my wife. Through this, uh, she advised me about my finances, about cutting back the trees in the garden where they were meeting each other, the, uh, they were getting too close. Uh, I was not to do it myself, I was to get somebody else to do it. Um, and she suggested I ought to remarry. This was rather an eye-opener for me. She said, don't do it for 12 to 18 months. She said, you must stabilise yourself, but I wouldn't like you to think I would mind. It would make me very happy. Well, this was an eye-opener. But to cut a long story short, by the end of 12 months, 11 months actually, I had met a lady whose husband had died about the same time, and I proposed to her. I got a message from my wife saying, the gay widower has made the right choice. He has stuck exactly to his script. Script? Did I have a script? What script is this? To cut a long story short, just before we were married, I have a friend who is a very clever doctor. He's everything you can be. He's a physician, a psychologist, a neurologist, and a surgeon, because he just takes exams all his life but when he was young, he went to a medium who forecast his future so accurately 
But now he was thinking of retiring from the National Health Service. He said, could I fix up an interview or a meeting with a medium for him? So I fixed up one with a very well-known medium. And on the day, he couldn't go. He had to take a, sur a surgery, emergency. So I said to my present wife, Lily, you take it. Well, she was in there for about an hour and ten minutes. And when she came out, I said, what was it like? She said, I can't tell you. She looked absolutely stunned. My wife and her husband had come through together and said that all four of us knew each other and had come into incarnation together. And we had planned this before we were born, that they two should move on to do their work and we should stay here to do our work. And the medium said, I've never seen anything like this in all my working with spirit. Um, my wife said to my present wife, thank you, thank you. Please look after him. Anyway, cutting a long story short, it was for a purpose. So there is work to be done. So what work are we doing? Well, another thing happened to me. By chance, I came across some tapes. Here they are. And they were made by a circle, which was four mediums sitting together in Sidmouth. And uh, they got so good that through the main medium, John Turner, the White Brotherhood arranged for a hundred messages to come to mankind. And they had all kinds of people were trained. They had to train to do it. They were all dead. They wanted to come back as part of their service. And they trained. And what they had to do was to describe events in their life, their passing, their experiences after passing. And I've got lists of the tapes here. And the kind of things that um, the people who came through were Indira Gandhi. Now, she actually came through in the circle shortly after being assassinated in India. I think the first thing she said was, um, am I dead then? Where am I? And she'd come through to this circle in, in England and she came back to make two tapes describing her thoughts about India, the fact of her assassination and what had happened to her since. Her father, Pandit Nehru, made two excellent tapes. We have one made by a pharaoh, Thotmes III. Florence Nightingale has made several. Um, Lord Mountbatten made a couple. And uh, George VI has made two. But in addition, many ordinary people, people who had ordinary lives, perfectly like a woodchopper, a doctor, a bank manager, an airman, a house, many housewives, all describing their experiences on passing and giving advice. Now, at first, when I first had these tapes, my first thought was, I don't believe they're genuine. Surely not. So the man who had them, I said, can I borrow four and listen to them? And I listened to them over and over and over again. Then I got another four and I listened to them. And in the end, I thought, yeah, I believe these are genuine. But all the time, I was getting a great deal of information because there's a terrific spiritual education in the tapes. All these people talking about their new perspective from where they are now. Well, you can see why I begin to think there may be life after death. These things have all happened to me. I'm beginning to think it must be true. But I have a group that meets at my house on Mondays, met for about eight years now. And what we met for, we called it the Peace Circle. And we met to pray for peace. We had a Quran, we had a Bible, and of course we failed, we didn't succeed. But what did happen to us, and we did not expect it at all, was that a guy came through the medium and said his name was Leaping. He was a Chinaman who had died 
about 300 of our years ago, he'd always had great compassion for the underdog, something which he said amongst his class in China, the mandarins, was simply not done. They regarded the peasants as simply animals to be used, but he had always had this soft spot for anybody in trouble. And so he specialised in rescue work. You may not have heard of rescue work, but when people die in battle or in accident, they sometimes are earthbound. That's to say, they go on repeating the same actions, they can see their body is de dead, but to, as far as they can see, they're alive and they've still got a body. And they may still go on fighting. And now there are spirits who come to meet everybody who dies, but they can't get through to them. Their vibrations are too low, and they need to use human beings like me, whose vibrations are low enough, to be able to communicate. And Li Ping said, if you're willing, we will bring you people who we cannot deal with. And we began to get four American airmen, first of all. They were lively, they were jokish, they'd all been killed. And we really had fun with them. But we were able to explain to them that there was another life, another world waiting for them. There were people waiting to help them, but they had to do two things. They had to look for the light and ask for help. And if they would do that, the scene that they were watching would gradually change and they would see a helper. And we got them away. And we got English servicemen, young Scotsmen killed in a tank. We got Iraqis who could speak English. We had a whole group of Iraqis. Now they could speak to us by taking over the body of the medium and speaking to us. And we had things like, where is the paradise? We cannot find the paradise. We cannot see it. Where is the paradise? We would have to explain, yes, there is a kind of paradise. You have passed. Look for the light. Someone will come to help you. They will guide you. There is a world waiting for you. Not quite the paradise you're expecting. Because they all expect the paradise in the Quran. Because in the Quran, it says that any man dies fighting against the infidel will be taken to one of the eight gates of paradise. There he'll be met by beautiful ladies called the Huris. They will take him in, give him wine and fruit and anything else he wants. What happens to ladies dying for the infidel, they don't mention. But it's a rather a man-directed book. But anyway, they were looking for this, you see. It's one reason why the people who are Muslims are quite keen on fighting, because it's, it's a sure, straight trip to paradise, you see, and no risk of hell or damnation. Anyway, we had all sorts of groups. And we had people dying in road accidents coming into us. And then, occasionally, no rescue work. But we met just the same, the rescue work stopped, and people came through to speak to us. We had people who died in fires. We had learned people. One day we had a lecturer. He spoke so clearly and so well. And I thought from what he said, I could guess who he was. I said, excuse me, but did you write the book, The Watcher on the Hills? I did, he said. And I knew at once it was Rainer C. Johnson a famous writer of spiritual books. He was the master or principal of Queen's College, University of Melbourne. He gives us little 20-minute talks on God consciousness, infinity, love, detachment, always practical talks about leading the spiritual life. So I've had quite a few reasons for thinking that I'm not mad. There really is not only another world, but a whole series of other worlds. Now, I haven't answered the question. 
that that Saxon king raised. We don't know where we come from. We don't know where we go. Because although I've talked about the next stage of life, that's not the subject of the talk. The subject of the talk is the return to the source. And this is such a vast subject, I wonder if I should even embark on it. But I'm going to have a go. Because something happened to me. I went to take a service at a church in Dorish. At the end of it, the address, I said to the people, now I don't want you to believe what I'm saying, because I say so. My information comes from my teacher, and he always says, I don't want you to believe what I'm saying because I say so. It is your responsibility to decide what you believe. Listen to it. Weigh it up. If to you it seems logical, if intuitively it seems right, adopt it. If not, reject it. That is your privilege and your responsibility to decide what you believe. Now, the lady came up to me after the service and said, I'm getting a book channel through me, and that's exactly what my teacher says. It's in the front of the book. He won't even give his name, because that would end authority to the book. He calls himself Alpha. And right in the front of the book, I've got to put this. Only believe this if it fits sequentially with your previous knowledge, and you believe it to be true. Would you be interested to hear about my book? I said, yes, I would. So the lady came to our house, and she told us that she had sat down at her word processor trying to write a science fiction novel, a fluent writer. But she no sooner started than she had this marvellous feeling of being overpowered or overshadowed by a beautiful spiritual force. She said it was the sweetest thing that ever happened to her. And this came into her head, words she could hear. Are you willing to write a book for me? Yes. And it started to come. The title of the book, The Universal Universe. The chapter headings, the words, all worked out the right length. She didn't know what was going to come next. She never knew what would be on the next page. Sometimes she'd say, I don't agree with this, I don't believe it. But still it came. And the book was called The Universal Universe. And I mustn't go on too long. You've been very good and very patient, but I'd just like to skim through what that spirit Alpha taught. He said that he had passed 3,000 years ago in Egypt. He had gone on quite a long way. And all the time he had been studying and researching, asking people far more evolved than him about what happened in the universe. And he said, my group and I would like to publish the book because there are going to be big changes on planet Earth and we think it's important people should know. So she started to type the book and she was so concerned that she made three copies of each chapter. She had one in the house, put one in the boot of the car and posted one to me. In case there was a fire and she lost it, you see. So she had to preserve this precious book. And when it came to chapter 13, he suddenly did chapter 15. And she said, why are you doing this? He said, I'll tell you later. She finished chapter 15, then he did chapter 14. Well, why did you do that? Well, if you'd done it the other way around, you'd have started interfering with it, because I knew you would object to it. So he said, I did it this way around, because your mind would started to interfere. And doing it this way, we avoided that problem. And uh, then, that lovely feeling left her, and she was quite bereft. She said, oh, God, the light's gone out of my life. You know, it was so marvellous to have this marvellous, uplifting feeling. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about what the book says. I don't know any other teaching 
so profound as this. And I've been reading all my life. There's a book, The Ancient Wisdom, by Annie Bizant, which I think is very good. But it's rather hard. This one is not exactly easy, but it is so comprehensive that for once you've sketched out the whole thing. The author thinks that, the, that's the spirit, thinks the book is perhaps 20 years ahead of its time, and that may be true. But Alpha explains that interpenetrating our universe that we can see are an infinite number of other universes. They're here, but they all vibrate, the atoms, at different speeds. And we can only see the one that vibrates at our speed, so we're not conscious of all the other universes. Now, funnily enough, I happened to pick up today a book by Rainer Johnson. I opened it at random, and I saw something I would like to read to you, because it's exactly on this point. A man was sitting in a church, an ordinary little church, not many people there, not a very good choir, and suddenly he began to see like blue smoke. But it wasn't smoke, it was blue light. He saw infinite beings of every possible kind all passing through them in the way that a wind would go through the trees. He saw glorious beings, wonderful beings, millions of them, and they were going like you were going through a fog. And he felt so marvellous. And this, for him, went on for hours, and then it died away, and only one verse of the TDM had passed. It couldn't have been more than a couple of minutes. And he saw the whole thing, and he saw this infinite series of different universes and myriads of people, and they were all alive and lovely and beautiful, and they were just going through us. It rather confirms that some people in the mystical vision actually see it. And one of the reasons why some people take LSD is that sometimes they see it. And the glimpse of this affects your whole life. Everything has changed. And we know, of course, that here we have a table, and to us it's solid, and yet through the electron microscope, it's composed of clouds of atoms separated by an enormous amount of space. But to our view, it's solid. To the electron microphone, it's like the universe, like the stars, it's all separated. So we know that the way we see things is not necessarily the only way they are. Anyway, the totality of all these universes, and there's an infinite number, he doesn't know how to number them, he calls the universal universe, and now he's just a split through it. He explains, to put it very briefly, that we have a physical body inside that is an etheric body, inside that there are other bodies, and inside that is a spirit. When we die, the physical body drops, the etheric body continues in the etheric realm, which seems perfectly natural to it. It doesn't seem any different, any less solid than the one it inhabited before. He asked us to accept the idea of reincarnation and progression through a series of lives. But what he then describes is how the spirit starts out from the great spirit or God and makes the great circuit of eternity. I think, I mustn't go into it in too much detail, but he said, the problem is, I'm trying to explain something to you and to me which you've got no experience of. Imagine you were suddenly on a spacecraft, meeting a space being, and you wanted to explain to them what vegetation was like, or a tree on your world. But they came from a world where there was only desert. How would you explain to them what a tree was? It would be very hard. 
unless he has something in his world that was a little bit like a tree, and he could say, well, it's a different shape, a different colour, but, you know, he'd have some idea of what you meant by a tree. He said, that's the problem I'm in, and that's the problem that all religious teachers have. They can't tell you exactly, because you've got nothing in your experience, but he said, I'm going to give you a picture which will be like a symbol of what it's like. Can you imagine, in the middle of a huge forest, the most tremendous fire, I believe it says in the Bible, our God is a consuming fire. But this fire is so brilliant, you can't look at the heart of it. But round the outskirts is yellow and orange and red, and great flames are leaping up, leaping with joy, marvellous flames, and out of the top are coming sparks, blue, green, yellow, and they sail away. And all the time, fresh logs from the forest are being piled on the fire. And the sparks go away, and as they cool, their light goes out. But the inner heart is still glowing. Carbon falls on the outside, and eventually, somewhere in the forest, they come to the ground. In here, eventually, the rains attack them, and the nutriment goes down to the ground, and the trees take it up into the trees. And so that spark is now going up into a tree. Eventually, it becomes part of a leaf and it drops to the ground again. And here it decays and the nutriment goes back into the tree and up and up a thousand times, round and round the circuit. Down to the ground to decay, back up into the roots, back up into the tree. And comes a stage where it doesn't become a leaf, it becomes a flower. But the flower decays, falls, decays, back up into the tree. And occasionally it becomes a fruit. And the fruit falls and decays, some of it and it goes back up into the tree. And now this time it falls down, it doesn't go back, it goes back into the trunk, it becomes part of the trunk. And this tree is now felled. And the, the woodsmen come, and the tractors come, and they take it towards the fire. And from all around the forest, logs are going back to the fire. And eventually it comes to the stage where it goes back into the fire, and it aids to make this fantastic blaze, which is now expanding and is now part of the fire again. And maybe it will go out again as a spark going round. Now this is a picture to give you some idea of what's actually happening in the universe. Because all of us, he says, don't say I say, all of us, Alpha says, were once a part of the Great Spirit. There is a bit in us, which is individual, which will go from life to life, from body to body, but it is a part of God. The Quakers say there is that of God in every man. This is the bit. It is eternal because God is eternal in that sense. Well, why did we ever leave the bliss, the power, the knowledge of being a part of the Great Spirit? What made us come off into matter and struggle and strive and have difficulties and problems? Well, Alpha says, we cannot understand the Great Spirit, call it God if you wish, but we do know that it is the power of love and knowledge and power. And in order for the Spirit to be sustained and to grow, and it must grow, it needs fuel. And particles volunteer out of love to leave and go off 
inter-incarnation in matter, but not the kind of incarnation that we know about. If I could just make it a little clearer, again, we're making an analogy for something which is perhaps beyond our capacity to really visualize, but Alpha gave this symbol. He said it will help people to understand what I'm trying to say. Here we have a ring. This is the Great Spirit. Eons and eons and eons ago, <coughs> particles from the Great Spirit went off in to the pre-angelic stage. And here they float about, hardly individual yet, still in touch with the Great Spirit. They fill all the spaces of the universe. They make a kind of network through which communication can go up and down. And after spending eons there, they come down into the angelic realms. It's a matter of vibrations, it's not space. As they come into the angelic realms, they start to gather their, what we call total souls. Each spark from that fire is a total soul. And as it comes into the angelic realms, it begins to accumulate energy and form. It begins to have a shape, it begins to be an individual. And at this stage, it makes a great choice. The choice is either positive or negative. Now Alpha says, I don't know why they do it. He said, I think it may be that the shock of leaving the Great Spirit affects people differently. Some people think, oh God, this is worse than I thought. I wish I'd never come. And some people think, this is good. This is what I wanted to do. But anyway, he said that the spirits divide up, apparently, almost equally, into positive and negative. And if you look round at your friends, you may decide that some of them are still positive or negative uh, in their responses to everything that happens. Now, the length of time that this occurs is something beyond our imagination because we are dealing with infinity. So if I said it took a million years to go from there to there, that would be nothing. But the strange thing is, they come down now to the etheric level, coming lower and lower, and here they begin to actually turn into matter. Matter is condensed spirit. And their first job as they go out is to make the physical environment of the fine etheric matters. And then they come down lower still, and now they break up. A total soul breaks into, to into what they call soul cells, perhaps 10,000 separate soul cells. But when they come into the physical realm, the world that we know about, they break up into individual souls. So there might be a million individual souls have come from that one total soul. And here, they make the mineral of our world. The, the mineral that is there now is condensed spirit and it will be mineral till the end of this universe. It will become life in another universe. We were mineral in a previous universe which is long since gone. This is Alpha talking, not me. You can take him up afterwards. But it then starts the process of going up again. Now, I'd like to explain that this is going on all the time. It isn't just one person doing it, this is always going on. And the first spirits out, they made the physical universe in which other spirits could come down and start having individual experiences as vegetation, as mineral, as vegetation, as animal, as human. And this is involution, coming into matter. And the lowest point is here, where we are now. This is the very bottom of the tip. This is the densest matter, the hardest place. And our universe, being the densest, 
has particularly attracted negative spirits which is why there's so much negative energy about. But a lot of us volunteered to come into this because you can make more progress here in five minutes than you come in some places in five years because it's such a difficult place. It's also simple. Why isn't it generally known? There's a very good reason for it. I went to a talk not long ago by a man who is the tutor priest for the diocese of Exeter, which is a huge diocese. And he was giving a talk on the Christian view of death. And I thought, oh, wacko, this will be just the stuff for me, you see. But he never talked about death at all. He talked about funerals. So at the end, he said how in the early days the Christians always went happily to a funeral and they always dressed in white. Then when the church got power, when the Roman Empire became in power and Constantine uh, built up the structure of the priesthood, he started talking about hell and people all began to wear black. And that was the main point of his lecture. So at the end of it, I said to him, excuse my asking, but do you believe in life after death? He said, I hope nobody had asked me that. He said, I'm afraid I'm agnostic, I just don't know. And I thought, well, here's a priest of the Church of England, and he doesn't know it's his life after death. What was Jesus coming for? You know, what was it all about? And I find this with a lot of Christians. Well, the Church laid down something like 4th century that when you died, you lay in the grave to the end of time. And therefore, anybody who spoke to families or relations couldn't be. It was impossible. Therefore, it was devils. So the church published this officially, that anybody pretending to be your aunt or your mother or your nanny was the devil trying to lure you to destruction. Now, in 1922, the church abandoned this belief officially. They said it never was true. But, you know, between the 4th century and the 19th century, it's estimated that between two and 300,000 mediums were put to death by the church because they threatened their hold on the population because they had the greatest control over a population you can have. They could threaten you with eternal punishment or eternal <coughs> bliss. And the only way to be sure of it was to obey what the church did and do as you were told and confess your sins. And it was a marvellous source of power. If it was all bunkum and the dead could chat to you and tell you they were quite all right, and it didn't even matter if you'd been a Christian, it doesn't seem to matter whether you're a Buddhist, a Taoist, what matters is how you have treated other people. Because other people are God, in a sense. They're a particle of God. And how you've treated other people and other living creatures and how you've thought is what you'll be judged on. And the Parsis and the Buddhists and the... Uh, Mohammedans are all equally happy or equally unhappy. Your belief system doesn't really come into it unless it has led you to lead a good or a bad life. Well, this was not the thing the church wanted people to know, which is why I think, listen to Augustine, I forget who, one of the early fathers said that if a baby was not baptised, it would live eternally in hell, crawling about the red-hot floor. So people, oh God, please get the baby baptised. Terror. Literal terror. And so they killed the mediums. They couldn't kill the spirits, but they could kill the mediums, and they killed many of them. And some people say that's why there aren't so many about, because to some extent it's an inherited gift. It often runs in families. But um, I don't know if you know, but up until 1951, in this country it was a criminal offence to admit to being a medium. The punishment was three months' hard labour. 
and there was no defence. No lawyer could defend you. If you admitted it, it was an absolute offence in law. So spiritualist churches used to be burst open with police rushing in, arresting the medium. Then gradually it died down because people thought, well, this is ridiculous. But in 1951, I think they passed the Fraudulent Mediums Act. And from then on, only a person fraudulently pretending to be a medium for money, and it had to be fraudulent, could be imprisoned.